You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great, Annie. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. So why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol? Where where did it all start for you? I would say my relationship with alcohol started in graduate school. I was sort of a, a late bloomer. Um, I started in my late 20s. Prior to that, I was teaching at a Christian college. I had gone to a Christian college. It was part of a vibrant faith community. Um, but in my 20s, something just wasn't jiving. I had known for a long time that um, I felt different. You know, I was attracted to other guys. And according to the faith tradition I was a part of, that was not okay. That was sinful. And so I was really only left with two options if I were to stay in the church or in this community. And that was either to live a celibate life or to join a ministry where they pray the gay away and work in reparative therapy. And so I tried that. And I, my faith and spirituality was really important to me. This community was important to me. And so I, I did all of that, but I wasn't successful. And I just really struggled because I felt that I can't be a good Christian. I can't be a good follower. I can't be a you know person of faith and be gay. Those two just weren't compatible in, in this world. And so there were things about this community, too, that I started to see some red flags. There was a lot of control. There was a lot of, you know, unquestioning of authority. There was a lot of groupthink and just kind of gave me cult vibes after a while. And there were things that just weren't sitting right with me anymore. And so... I left that, but didn't leave the church. And I was able to kind of extricate myself from that community when I went to graduate school to do my PhD. I'm going to do a PhD so I could continue on in academia. And even though I was able to leave that environment, this struggle uh, between my faith and my sexuality continued. And it was like this tug of war, where on the one hand, it felt like I had to walk the straight and narrow to be a faithful disciple and to deny the desires of the flesh and go to heaven. Or I could live who I thought I was going to be, but then end up in hell. And neither of those, neither of those pictures was very attractive, obviously. And, you know, I was just... I felt very much alone in this struggle because I was no longer part of that community much, didn't have contacts since I had moved away for graduate school. Couldn't really talk with a lot of my new, the new friendships I was forming and other graduate students because they would just, they would just think I was crazy. I was afraid they'd think I was crazy for having, you know, they'd say, what's your problem? You know, live your life. Um, and so I just kind of struggled in silence, but I did go 
back to that community for some event and and shared this struggle that I had with a mentor of mine. He was a pastor, one of the pastors of the church. And he and his wife had been just had played a really instrumental role in my in my life. And um when I shared with him that I was just, I just didn't see that this was changeable or that this was I just didn't see how this was going to work out. He looked at me and he said, and I'll never forget this. He said, Brother Michael, Satan wants your soul. And then he repeated it again. He said, Satan wants your soul. And I just started sobbing in that moment. Not only because that's a really heavy thing to hear, but at that point, I knew I could just no longer be part of this community. And those tears were just grief that I was saying goodbye. I just could no longer be part of this community or this type of exclusive, rigid type of faith. And I didn't know where I what would happen to me. And so went back to where I was studying. And it was in this environment where I was, where I found alcohol. <laughs> I had all this turmoil going on. And it was just through, you know, meeting up with friends after a graduate seminar, or, you know, we were also TAs, we were teaching. And, and so we might go out afterwards and hang out and drink. And it was like all of a sudden that tug of war stopped. All that anxiety, all of that existential angst, this sort of, you know, feeling that my soul was a battleground of some cosmic struggle between good and evil just dissolved. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is, I don't have this voice constantly shaming me, constantly telling me I'm going to hell or or just the intense anxiety I felt, it just calmed it all down. And I had some sort of peace. And so that's really how it started. You know, I, I didn't become a daily drinker drinking all the time after that, because obviously I had no tolerance. I was a non-drinker before then. But I think that beginning, just me actually seeing, wow, this is helping something. This is calming that intense struggle uh and i need it i just wanted a break from it and alcohol did that and so you know alcohol was part of my life it was you know as graduate students we would go out we would um it's very social didn't seem like a problem at all but um over time obviously it increased and you know, that that intense struggle of between my faith and sexuality started to it died down after a while. But like most minds do, it then jumps to something else to obsess and be anxious about and worry about. And in my case, it was no different, whether it was my dissertation, whether I'd fail out of graduate school or relationship issues or getting a job in academia all of these things just became you know big areas of anxiety in my life and alcohol was always there to calm down 
those voices, to calm down that tug of war that I felt I was in. And so it just seemed like, you know, and what's interesting is all of those scary stories that my mind had painted for me never came true. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because each time I kind of, you know, and I, I don't want to give the impression that I lived in this constant state of fear and anxiety for, <laughs> for several years, you know, it went in seasons, it ebbed and flowed. And sometimes I was fine. And then something would come up and it would, my mind would blow it out of proportion and became a big deal, what, whatever it was. And you know, alcohol just seemed to take that edge off. Uh, it became, you know, just very much ingrained in different parts of my life. The man that I met in graduate school, fell in love with, who eventually became my husband, is from Spain, and introduced me to red wine. And as part of their culture, uh, we would plan trips to wineries and or go to Mexico to try mezcal, just different things that alcohol was a part of it. We wouldn't say we took trips just for the alcohol, but it, it was just a very much a part of a part of our lives. But um, you know, like I said, that anxiety was still there and it would come up in big ways. And the content of it would change, whether it was my own research, my degree, something in my work, or health issues, which was the one that really increased my anxiety. It was just the same thing. My mind painting scary stories of what might or could happen, but leaving that might and could out of the equation and just presenting it to me as it's good as guaranteed. Even though, like I said, none of that happened. None of those scary stories happened. By all by appearances, I was successful. My partner and I both got academic jobs in the same university. We both got tenure. I was doing triathlons. Everything just looked good on the outside. But on the inside, I would go through these periods of, of fear, worry, and feeling disconnected, just feeling like I wasn't, I didn't belong somehow. And yeah, alcohol was there. But as it increased, there was the sense that my anxiety was now turning to the alcohol itself. And alcohol was now the problem I was anxious about. Was I drinking too much? Mm-hmm. Am I, how much am I drinking compared to other people? When we're out at a restaurant, oh, how much is, how much is there? Are we going to order another bottle? I don't want to be the one to order it. Just this real fear of being exposed again as, oh, you know, now he has a problem. So there was just a lot of, a lot of hiding. My tolerance was getting higher. I started hiding bottles of alcohol around the house just so that, you know, because I wanted to have a drink or two before dinner so I could have a glass of wine or two or three at dinner with my husband, but that was never enough. So I had to have something before dinner, something after dinner. And, you know, as you know, it it just spirals uh, to the point where my husband found empty bottles around the house. 
and there, you know, he confronted me with it. And I don't, I don't know what I said. <laughs> Just would make something like, oh, I, I would kind of blow it off. I would be like, oh yeah, it don't, it don't, it's nothing or it's just something ridiculous trying to divert attention but it got to the point you know where he found one found an empty bottle that had been full the day before and just sat me down and said this has to stop this has to change you know i love you i i love you but i can't live with this fear i can't I'm afraid. I'm scared for you. I'm scared for me. And this needs to stop. And that just, um, it just affected me really deeply because here I was someone that was always trying to accommodate people, make people feel okay. And as someone who felt that I didn't fit in, or felt disconnected somehow to then have the person I love the most, basically, or me interpreting his fear that, oh, now I'm a burden. And that, that's not what he said. He was just being honest that he was afraid. He was afraid for my health. He was afraid for him, what was going to happen here. But I took on that extra shame that this is, maybe he's better without me. Maybe, maybe I'm just not good with people maybe i just need to to go away and at, at that time the only option i knew was aa and there was just no way i was going to go through that not because of something bad about aa it had more to do with my own baggage about churches and these meetings were taking place in a church basement and they were in secret or anonymous and just all kinds of alarms went off that said, no freaking way am I going to set foot in a place like that. So I thought, well, I'll just do, you know, hey, I can do a dissertation. I did a dissertation. I can do research. I've done half Ironmans. I can beat this. And so I just kind of put my, all my willpower into it. and. Um, maybe would go for a couple of weeks without drinking. And then of course, as, um, as we know with that, the willpower runs out and there was just this back and forth. So once again, I was in a tug of war, uh, this time it was between really wanting the alcohol and feeling like I needed it, that it's what was you know, helping me relax and calm that anxiety and making me feel okay. And yet at the same time, hating what it was doing to me, hating that I needed it, hating that I had to hide it and wanted that tug of war to stop. Once again, wanted that tug of war to stop. And so it was in January of 2020, it was dry January. So I thought, okay, new year, new month, I'm going to do dry January turn over a new leaf. And I came across your book, This Naked Mind. And I was actually, I had actually downloaded a day counting app where you can just put in whatever habit you're trying to abstain from. In the resources section, they had a whole bunch of books. And the only book on alcohol that didn't scare me was yours. It said, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. And I thought, well, that's 
perfect because I don't want to stop drinking. Just want to control this. I just want to, you know, get this under control. That's all. So I downloaded the book right away and I did what you basically tell readers not to do. I'd like read it all in one or two sittings and just consumed it because, and as I was reading it, I thought, I need to stop and think about this. I need to process this more deeply, but I want to keep going. I, I want to want to find out more. So I just blazed through it. And there were two things that just jumped out at me. The first was you saying that it wasn't my fault, that I wasn't broken, that my brain was actually working perfectly. My brain was doing exactly what a brain does when it's exposed to high amounts of a toxic and addictive substance. There's nothing wrong with me. The problem is the alcohol. And that just blew me away. I, it just, it released me from so much shame because I, up until then, I had thought, you know, why, why can't I beat this? I'm above average intelligence. I, you know, have these degrees and I'm strong. I'm a disciplined person. I do these athletic events. Why can't I beat this? But then to see that it wasn't my fault and my brain and my body were responding to alcohol exactly how it should. So that was just huge for me to see. And the second was seeing the intense amount of conditioning that we have as a society and the cognitive bias that exists surrounding alcohol, you know, with studies that that red wine is good for you. Uh, the way you just pulled back the curtain on all of that and the research you cited, and even though I'm not a researcher on alcohol or addiction research, I have a PhD, I know how to read research studies, I conduct research. And so I was able to actually look up the studies you mentioned and, and be able to say, okay, I can, I can trust Annie here. She, she's, what she's saying is right. And so then trust was a big thing for me. So I felt like, okay, I, I, I can trust this. And what was amazing was, you know, I intended to go for dry January and I just, I went 60 days just, just after reading that it, with those two insights. And then of course, March, 2020 happened and the world changed before our eyes. And I, I started drinking again, but I couldn't unlearn what I had seen. And so I stayed in the conversation. I was watching. I, since I really resonated with your book, I found you on YouTube, started watching some of your YouTube videos. In one of your interviews, you interviewed Dr. Amy Johnson, and I resonated with her. So I started following her. And I feel like during the pandemic, you and Amy were my were helping me so much <laughs> during that time. And yeah, I was still drinking, but that shame had been taken away. And so I might go several weeks or another month or two without drinking, go back. But I was staying in the conversation. But I knew that each time I started drinking again, it became more intense. I, something in me knew that my drinking days were numbered and this habit or addiction was coming to an end, you know, and just with the pandemic, 
the stress I was under as an educator, a lot of educators, but teachers of all levels, the stress that so many of us were under, the riots happening in cities across the country, the uh, all the drama surrounding the the 2020 election here in the United States, there was just, you know, wanting to numb all of that was certainly understandable, but it was becoming clear to me that it was, it wasn't sustainable for much longer. And so the end of December, because I was following you in on Facebook or YouTube, I saw you were doing a live alcohol experiment in January, 2021. And I signed up. And it was such a game changer for me to be in a community, even though it was a, you know, on Facebook and I actually had left Facebook a number of years back, but I got back on Facebook just to do the live alcohol experiment and to be with, you know, well over a thousand people that from all over the world of all these different ages and backgrounds, and they all were struggling with this. And that in and of itself was very powerful. It, it made me see that I wasn't alone, that this is way more common than we think. And then, of course, the content, having you in my inbox every morning, seeing those videos where we just dug into what we think alcohol is doing for us, you know, listing why we're drinking. Uh, why we want to change our relationship with alcohol. Um, and then getting curious about what is this really doing for us? Is it doing what we think it is? You know, is our mind telling us the truth about this substance? And it, it was powerful. It was really powerful for me. And the, the coaches, the live sessions, I mean, I just went all in. I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to all the lives I can. I want to, you know, learn as much as I can. And, you know, I can't say enough about the coaches in that live. You know, I remember Ellie, Emma, Brandy, Simon, Onoa. I, I just was always at their lives, asking questions, interacting with them and their compassion, their wisdom, their warmth and kindness and generosity just made such an impact. And when I got to the end of the 30 days, I looked back at my list of whys from the first day. And I think I had about 10 and nine of them had gone away saying that alcohol doesn't make me relax. It doesn't make me happy. All of these things that I just assumed about the substance through our conditioning, they just no longer made sense. And so I was kind of riding this high of like, wow, this is amazing. I was feeling better than I had in, in years. Uh, I had more energy. I was working out more. I was much more clear-headed in my, my research, my teaching, and all of that more present in my relationships. But eventually that kind of the honeymoon wore off and by mid 2021, I just found myself in this depression, in this anxiety again. It wasn't as intense as previously. I'd seen how alcohol was actually causing way more anxiety. 
and it was relieving. But I just thought, why, why am I back in this, this sort of funk? Why am I, why am I not feeling liberated? Why am I not? I know alcohol isn't the answer and I don't really want it, but I just feel really bad. Just don't feel right in my own skin. I feel disconnected. I feel, you know, and I went back and the one why that did not fall away in those 30 days was I drink because alcohol helps me numb and check out. And that's true. You know, <laughs> alcohol does numb. <laughs> and so I really had to get curious. What was I numb? Why? What was I trying to numb? Why was I wanting to check out? And yeah, it was anxiety, but I just felt like oh, maybe there's there's probably unresolved trauma. There's who knows? Um, everything just felt really heavy. And I thought, you know, I'm four and a half, five months alcohol free, but I feel terrible. And I don't know if this is worth it. And I was still, but I was still listening. I was still listening to you. I was listening to your podcast. I was listening to, I was in Spain in the summer of 2021, where I go every year to work with our university's international programs. And I feel like that summer of 2021, you and Rob Bell and Amy Johnson and Glennon Doyle were my constant companions and podcasts and listening. There was one day where I was just feeling like, what am I doing? You know, this is just not, I was just really depressed, feeling alone, disconnected, all kinds of stuff. And I happened to catch one of Amy Johnson's lives, uh, her Ask Amy, where someone asked a question about loneliness. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> this is relevant. And I don't remember exactly what she said, but what I heard was something along the lines of an invitation to be curious about the experience of loneliness and disconnection and how there are times we feel lonely and disconnected and times we don't regardless of the circumstances outside. So we can be with the people we love and the people close to us and yet feel incredibly disconnected or lonely. And there are times that we don't. There are times we can be alone in nature and sense this oneness and connection, even though no one's around. So what is that? And then she said something like, what if what we're really feeling is a story of loneliness? A left brain interpreter that's saying, I'm lonely, I'm disconnected uh, because of stuff in the past. And so something in the future, this is how it's going to be in the future. But what if in reality, as humans, we are, we share one essence? And what if we are more connected than we could ever imagine? And tears just welled up in my eyes when I heard that, that something landed. Um, and then another part of, part of me said, that's just way too woo-woo for me. That just, <laughs> that's, that's a little too out there. I don't know about that. 
but I, I couldn't shake it. There was something I thought, you know, this makes sense. Just like I was believe, just like I was believing my mind stories about alcohol. What if I'm just believing a story about me being disconnected? What if I really do fit? What if connection is my nature? And I just went outside and I went, I was in Valencia, Spain, and went to the central market where there's just all of these people. And it's just, it's an amazing place. And all of these people that I didn't know that were moving in and out, and I just felt or ex just had this sense of that essence or of this connection that is really hard to put into words, but it landed so deeply. And I just got a glimpse that, oh my gosh, I've been believing a story that yes, this is my nature, my nature's connection. I'm not separate from life. I'm part of life. And I can't be separate. I can't be disconnected from that. And it, it's, it's hard to put that into words because it kind of, and it does sound a little woo-woo, but it, it really landed with me. And it just got me thinking to get curious about this, my own stories around anxiety, around worry around self-doubt and that exploration is when i really started to see things turn around that yeah i could i would still experience anxiety and get caught up but i started seeing it as a story that i was believing and when i would come back to the present moment it wasn't there there was something else there and this didn't happen overnight. I mean, that one experience was really impactful, but you know, it, it took a while. It, it's almost like a train that is, or a vehicle that's going fast, you hit the brakes, but the vehicle's still moving, you know? So my thoughts were still kind of going and that would get in these worry loops, but something had shifted there. And I came back from Spain and decided to do the September 21 live alcohol experiment just because I, I was convinced that I, that I was done with alcohol and I just wanted to kind of, there was so much amazing content in the alcohol experiment that I felt like I want to go back and do this again. And I did. And it was absolutely the insights that I had. Uh, and there were things that I saw completely different that I didn't see in January. There was an offhanded comment you make in one of the videos about how, how is it that we give so much meaning to this liquid in a glass? And again, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I keep talking about how I want to change my relationship with alcohol and alcohol this and that, but alcohol has no agency. It's an inanimate substance. I can't have a relationship. I can't have a relationship with a liquid like alcohol any more than I can have a relationship with laundry detergent, really. I mean, it's it just blew my mind. I just started laughing. I was like, oh, the relationship is with my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And 
I, yeah, it was one of those moments where I like, I can't believe I didn't see that before. It, it seems so obvious, but it's just really cool. And lots of different things like that happened that month. And at the end of September of 2021, I kind of knew I was done. You know, I knew I didn't want this to be just an exploration, an experiment anymore. Um, and just wanted to share with you what I wrote on, on the Facebook page, my very last day of the alcohol experiment, because it really just tied up so much of how things turned around for me. So I said, being on this journey has made me realize that I viewed alcohol as an emergency exit to numb anxiety, worry loops, and other uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Now I'm beginning to see that there really is no emergency. A true emergency would call me to action, call an ambulance, escape a burning building, and so forth. But thoughts and feelings, as difficult as they can be, are not an emergency, nor are they something I need to escape from. I think my way forward is learning how to sit with them, lean into them, learn from them, and to become aware of other exits my mind offers me to give me temporary relief. And I just, and then that final why disappeared when I saw that I don't need an emergency exit. I, there's nothing I need to numb. There's nothing I need, no experience that as difficult as it may be that I need to manage, control, um, enhance, uh, or numb, I can be with it. And I'm much more resilient than I could imagine. Oh, that's amazing, Michael. Just so great. So powerful. We're going all the way back to the beginning. How have you made peace with your faith? <laughs> it's an ongoing process, but you actually had a role in that without knowing it. In 2020, when I was, you know, listening to you and things like that, you know, I was getting your emails and I saw, read one of your emails and I heart just sank and had this sudden burst of fear because I saw you were interviewing Rob Bell. And Rob Bell and I went to the same Christian school at the same time. Oh, wow. And I had, you know, we, we were in different circles, so we didn't really know each other. But and because I had left that world, the last thing I knew about Rob Bell was that he was pastor of a mega church and, and all of this. And so I thought, oh, no, Annie, what are you doing? You know, I, I trusted you and now you're <laughs> bringing this back in. But I listened. and. I couldn't, I had to listen again because I was crying the whole way through that conversation. And then I reached out to Rob and just thanked him for, you know, I read his book like right away, everything is spiritual. And it was through kind of your work and having Rob on your podcast that I was able to explore spirituality again explore issues of faith again in a way that felt authentic to me that was not 
that was that just wasn't like anything I had seen. And so that that was a huge step because I felt that I was disconnected spiritually and uh, that helped bring me back. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for the work that you do. Um, it, it's just, it's just amazing. You know, I'm seeing more and more how curiosity is central to changing any habit. Um, and the way you invite us to be curious along with you about these beliefs in a way where there is no shame, no judgment, it's that we're experimenting. We're just getting curious about this. Let, let's see. And that invitation made me feel safe. Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for creating a space for those of us who have felt like there weren't safe spaces to be in a space where we could be curious, to ask questions um, without a firm commitment to lifelong sobriety or anything like that, um, just to take a look at this. It was so life-changing for me, and I can't thank you enough. What's also really cool about curiosity is it's like, it's a filter by which you can sort of at a principle level, I feel, discern where there's wisdom or where there's fear. Because if yes. there's fear, like the group you described in the beginning is probably very against curiosity. Questions were probably yeah. about it. Uh, yeah. But I feel that, you know, if there's a, a God that's created every single thing I see, experience, and understand, then there would never be a question that was too big. I mean, hello, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, of course, I know question would, would come. And so it's, it's so helpful, even, even outside of a spiritual realm, just, just looking like, is somebody willing to be questioned? Is somebody yeah. willing to, you know, like allow others curiosity is curiosity welcomed here? Or is it, is it not, is it shut down? Is it, are you, are you made to feel wrong when you ask questions? And I, I feel like that's such a good filter between places where you'll find wisdom and growth and places where you'll find fear and you won't right. find, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I sensed in, in your programs and in your videos and in, and also some others, just that, that sense of cure that it's okay to ask these questions and that, and we may not even have answers, but let's explore this. Let's ask the questions. And is can we get a little more curious about sort of the dogmatic beliefs that our mind has been presenting us about X, Y, or Z? And know that those beliefs aren't, you know, I, I went through a period where I felt like, oh, my mind's the enemy here. But to see that, no, you know, the, these stories were created, this chatter arose out of protection at some point in time. And, you know, our, our brain wants to protect us. It, it wants to protect and predict and all of that, that it's all very well-meaning. It's not the enemy. It's, you know, and even I felt, I started seeing that, you know, even when I was dealing with 
cravings around alcohol. And I know some people like to really demonize, you know, they call it the wine witch, they call those voices very negative names. And, and I get it. I get why people do that. But I also think, you know, that voice is trying to be helpful and we're misunderstanding it. You know, it, you know, in my case, yeah, it, it was, it was calming intense anxiety and fear about was I going to hell, you know, uh, and something that calmed that down. Well, of course, my brain's going to remember that and say, hey, do this. It, it's not an evil, you know, it's not a witch. It's not evil. It's trying to get me. It, it's trying to be helpful and we misunderstand it and to learn to be compassionate with that and know that we don't have to identify with it anymore. We can see it as, okay, there's, there it is. This is trying to be helpful, but I don't need that protection, that help anymore. Right. Right. And really, really understanding that any place where there still exists fear yeah. of substance, of yourself, it's not free. And the only way to really find your way past that fear, like if, if it's fear that's keeping you sober, like I would suggest that there's another layer of freedom that's available to you, right? Because absolutely, you know, we can do a lot of things with the animating energy of fear. We right. can go pretty far, but it's not, it's not really freedom. And, you know, back to that litmus test of, of curiosity, like, I mean, I was so curious in my story that I went ahead and got drunk. And right. I know. <laughs> just how it felt, right? Like there was no fear in me of any truth. Like right. I was valuing what was true over valuing what I should or shouldn't do, right? Like I was, I was so willing to be like, okay, even if like I was willing to go and get drunk in front of a camera and have the outcome be that, yeah, I overreacted. No big deal. I should start drinking again. Like I was willing for that to be the outcome. I was willing for the other outcome too, which is what happened. I was like, there's nothing here. Why would I ever do that again? But like the place of freedom in that, like just like radical level of curiosity, right? And it's one of the things that I find really heartbreaking about existing recovery structures is it, they are fear. There's so yeah. much you know, and, and so much shame. And it's one of the things I find most heartbreaking about like the brokenness of churches is yes. that what came from love is governed by fear. And, and, you know, what that man said to you, he was afraid for you, you know, like yeah. he was afraid and that fear just like, it doesn't, gosh, it's not of God, like how no. I understand any sort of creator that could possibly exist. It is non, there's no duality in that. We introduce the duality when we introduce our own thinking. And the main yes. way, very sadly, that we introduce the duality is when we judge ourselves. Yes. Because in that shame that the most duality is exists, the most fear is existed is when we think we aren't okay, right? When we think yeah. we are okay. And, and if you consider the path to self-compassion, we think like the self-work, like we all, we want to work 
I like my friend Jay. He says like, when you're, you want to work like five levels out, you want to work on like the general public. If you imagine you're the first level, your family's the second level, your close circle of friends is the third level, your kind of work is the fourth level, and then the public's opinion of you is the fifth level. Like you kind of want to work like many levels out and we discount the first level work. But if you imagine like if we can find self-compassion in ourselves, when we know all of our thoughts and all of our judgments, and, and it's no human being, it's not pleasant up in there. It's just not. The thinker right. thinks it's just a mess. And so if we can find self-compassion and accept our thoughts and accept them as protection, accept them as, and if we can do that, then like that will spill out to the whole rest of the world. Like it doesn't even take effort not to judge other people because you found for, for when you're face to face with all the worst of what the mind can offer which is what happens inside. But yeah, it's kind of tangential. I just, I just so agree with you. And um, no, it, it's, it's perfect. And it's, it's, you know, what you say that you seeing that our mind is not the enemy, you know, it's there for protection. And for me, learning to have compassion with that, you know, that harsh judgmental voice that was shaming, it was trying to protect me. It was trying to keep me small and keep me safe because of some really bad stuff that happened as a kid, you know, and, and to be like, oh, okay, yeah, you're not, you're just trying to, you're just trying to do your job. And, and you believe that this is helping me and, and to really say, okay, you know, um, I, I don't need your protection, but just come along for the ride. I know you've got a lot to say right now. So you, you can ride in the back seat. <laughs> I'd almost think of it that way. Like, okay, you know, I'm not trying to banish you because then that only makes it louder. But to say, okay, you know, I know you want to, these voices, these, these thoughts, they want to be seen. They arise because they want to be seen. They want to be felt and they want to move on. But we spend so much time trying to resist them or push them down or shame them away or bite them, whatever. Yeah. When, if we just let them be and know that they're, it's a story and they're trying to be helpful and just let them come along for the ride. Sometimes they get loud. You know, it's very much like the example you give about the five-year-old with the ice cream wants the ice cream so bad and it's just screaming in the car it, it can be like that you're just like okay yeah okay keep <laughs> not gonna but you'll eventually run out of steam and and you're okay you know you're, you're still riding along i've got you we don't have to identify with it and it's yeah and so you the way you know you the way you've talked about some of this and getting curious about our beliefs and and some others it's just been really helpful not to see the wisdom in in the, that that they are protective, and we don't need to think of them as the enemy. We can welcome them and allow them to be, and they'll they'll move on. Yeah, and when they get stuck is when we resist. When we get stuck in our stories, and then it just yeah. entrenches and entrenches. Right. And, you know, and it still happens to me, you know, I still, we all still get caught up, but the difference now is that I have this little bit of space to see where I can be really in it, where something will, you know, 
whatever, work-related or whatever-related. doesn't really matter. And I can know it's a story, and it can be still painful. It can still be stressful and all of that. But there's still this little bit of space that I'm able to fall back into and say, okay, this is not all there is. I'm seeing this is a story that's playing out needs to be heard but i'm okay yeah i'm i'm okay absolutely it's so true. i'm not broken and this story cannot break me mm-hmm. either that's great well michael this has been such a pleasure let me ask you the two questions to um kind sure. of uh, first of all if people are interested in your coaching where can they find you they can find me at openvistascoaching.com. Amazing. And then um, if you were going to go back in time and talk to one of, I'll let you pick when I usually, I usually <laughs> pin my place in the story, but I think it's going to be better if you pick today, but just to, to a former Michael who, who you shared with us and you were going to tell him about what life is like now, what would you say? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. Um, I think there'd be two questions, and it would be those invitation questions. Um, Those what-if questions. What if you're not broken? Mm. And what if everything you're looking for outside of yourself is already yours? That peace, that connection is already part of who you it is who you are and you're just caught up in a story right now yeah don't take my word for it just consider and be curious and see what opens up for you and that's i think that's what i would say i love that and i i love it too because i think you might be one of the first people who has asked questions I can't remember that having happened before. And I am reflecting on that, that, and of course I frame that I frame, what advice would you give or what would you say? So I don't know, maybe my frame has something to do with it, but I'm just reflecting on this idea of working with the brain instead of against it and working with the brain. The brain is all about the questions and not at all about the advice. (laughs) advice. It's like, no, thank you. I'm good. Yeah you ask a brain a question and it's like, boom, like, you know, just fires to life. Yes. Let me answer. You know, let me, let me answer. Let, let, let me consider that. Yeah. Why is it to consider asking a question instead of giving an answer? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's amazing. This has been great. Well, well thank, thank you. you Annie. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. 